Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 67, Let's Scratch the Surface, in which we take a look at some early studies of chemistry at surfaces. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. In our historical review of chemistry, we've only imagined and described chemistry of the three standard phases of matter solid, liquid, and gas. But how does chemistry happen? What are the requirement? What requirements are there for reagents to react? In many cases, you place a solid in a reactive atmosphere or drop some crystals into a solution. In other cases, you pass gaseous compounds over a solid, and the solid acts as a catalyst in some hand-waving, undefinable way, making the gaseous compounds react with each other while leaving the solid surface untouched. You can even pour two liquids together and the liquids react with each other. In all the examples I listed, a surface is required, whether that surface is part of a solid or a liquid. The reactions I mentioned all take place right at a surface, or also an interface between two phases. Thus, wherever the reagents meet, the cool chemistry happens. This is surface chemistry. Surface chemistry holds a special place for me, for it is the division of chemistry in which I did my doctoral research. It can also be one of the hardest types of chemical research to do for the following reason. A chunk of material sitting on a laboratory bench, in a flask or bottle, has perhaps 10 to the 23 or 10 to the 24 atoms or molecules. That's a whole lot of molecules and shows why it took till the early 20th century to convince scientists that atoms and molecules are real. They are so small that we easily miss their individual effects and only see their collective effects. A surface of said chunk of material contains only 10 to the 15 atoms or so per square centimeter. Compared with the rest of the material, the bulk, the surface contains only one one hundred millionth or so of the bulk material. Any effects coming from only the outer layer of the material, therefore, are masked by the huge numbers of atoms and molecules inside the material. How do you isolate and measure only the surface of something? This is the heart of the problem with doing surface chemistry and why surface chemistry took so long to mature compared with other types of chemical studies. You might ask, why does the surface matter? Because usually that's where the chemical action is. It's where burning of wood or coal happens, oxidation and rusting of metals happens, breakdown of noxious gases in your car's exhaust pipe happens, where absorption of nutrients happens in your gut, evaporation happens, and lots more. As Gabor Summerjai, a surface chemist and Holocaust survivor via Raoul Wallenberg, wrote in his book, Introduction to Surface Chemistry and Catalysis, quote, 
Molecular surface chemistry is used in innovative technologies relying on metal, semiconductor, and polymer surfaces in order to achieve controlled chemical bonding, adhesion, friction, electron and atom transport, solar energy conversion, and selective catalysis. Unquote. So let's take a look at the early history of surface chemistry. Perhaps the earliest writings dealing with the chemistry and properties of surfaces are that of oil on water, specifically from the ancients describing how pouring a little oil on ponds or the ocean can calm the water and remove waves and ripples. The phenomenon was described by Pliny the Elder in the first century CE in his book The Natural History. Omne oleo tranquillari. Et ob id urinantes ore spargere, coniam mitiget naturam asperam lucemque deportet. Everything is soothed by oil, and that this is the reason why divers send out small quantities of it from their mouths, because it smooths any part which is rough and transmits the light to them. The phenomenon is also mentioned by the Venerable Bede of England. Around the year 700, in his Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum, Benjamin Franklin, already America's most famous person as a scientist, was in England in 1774, and read the passage in Pliny. He decided to try this for himself on local ponds, including Clapham Pond in London. As he wrote, quote. In these experiments, one circumstance struck me with particular surprise. This was the sudden, wide, and forcible spreading of a drop of oil on the face of the water, which I do not know that anybody has hitherto considered. If a drop of oil is put on a polished marble table or on a looking glass that lies horizontally, the drop remains in its place, spreading very little. But when put on water, It spreads instantly many feet round, becoming so thin as to produce the prismatic colors for a considerable space, and beyond them so much thinner as to be invisible, except in its effect of smoothing the waves at a much greater distance. It seems as if a mutual repulsion between its particles took place as soon as it touched the water. And a repulsion so strong as to act on other bodies swimming on the surface, as straws, leaves, chips, etc., forcing them to recede every way from the drop.、Unquote. We now regard the oil as spreading so thin as to be one single layer of molecules thick, and this effect can be used to estimate the size of individual molecules. Franklin, though, never took this step. We jump forward over a century to the Austrian-German chemist Agnes Pockels. While a youngster doing homemaker chores, she found interest in soap's effects on water. She started doing her own experiments on the topic. Her best-known work was done using her own invention in the 1880s: a long, narrow metal trough, 70 centimeters long, 
five centimeters wide and two centimeters deep, filled with water. She placed a movable narrow metal strip across the water to divide the surface in two. She included a ruler to measure the position of the divider, and to help calculate the surface area of each half of the trough. To measure the surface tension of the water in the trough, she would add a small disc onto the water surface, and used an apothecary's balance to determine the force needed to pull the disc off the water. Her interest being the effect of soap on water, she found that soap had a large effect on surface tension, but only after reaching a certain amount of soap added. She plotted surface tension versus slider position on a graph, and figured out that where the surface tension changed suddenly was where there was a film of soap one molecule thick on the water, or what we now call a monolayer of soap. She then took Franklin's idea and calculated the area of one molecule of soap, about 0.2 square nanometers. We now call the point at which the surface tension changes the Pockels point. With more research and time, Pockels determined that even dust can affect experiments, and that the thickness of some monolayers was about 1.3 nanometers, billionths of a meter. Pockels is now considered one of the founders of surface science. We jump forward again to the General Electric Company of 1917 and the American chemist Irving Langmuir, whom we met in earlier episodes as a big proponent of Gilbert Lewis's valence theory of electrons in chemical bonds. In that year, Langmuir published a detailed paper called "The Constitution and Fundamental Properties of Solids and Liquids: Two Liquids." In this paper, not only does he present Lewis's idea as the most reasonable explanation for chemical bonds, he also spends much time discussing Pockels's work and the model behind what's going on, including an active group in soap or oil molecules with an affinity for water, and another group has none. Langmuir even measured the shapes of various oil molecules. Determined that their constituent hydrocarbon chains are flexible, that some molecules lie flat on water surfaces, while others stand upward. Langmuir is also regarded as a founder of modern surface chemistry. Langmuir worked with American Catherine Blodgett, the first American to get a doctorate in physics from Cambridge University. Blodgett, in the 1930s, continued Langmuir's work on surfaces. Her best-known extension in 1935 was to create multi-molecular layers of these thin films. To do this, she filled a trough with water, added a monolayer of oil on its surface, and repeatedly dipped a metal plate into the oil-covered water. These multi-layer films are now called Langmuir-Blodgett films. A practical use she invented for such films is invisible. Or non-reflecting glass, which is coated with forty-four layers of barium stearate.
By the 1930s, we have reached the era of quantum understanding, so we can talk about electron microscopes. In 1924, Louis de Broglie proposed that electrons have both wave and particle properties. So, along with mass, they have an associated wavelength. Davison and Germer plus Thompson in 1927 showed that this is true. Therefore, one can use electrons to image objects just like light microscopes do, as long as you can build electromagnets to focus the beam of electron waves. German physicist Hans Busch in 1926 created the first electromagnetic lens. This led to the first electron microscope, built by Germans Ernst Ruska and Max Knoll in 1931, with a magnification of 400 times. In short order, Ruska followed up with an electron microscope that had better resolution than a light microscope. And by 1937, initial work was being done in Germany on practical applications of electron microscopy, especially for biological materials. The initial method of electron microscopes was transmission electron microscopy, which requires serious preparation of your sample. That is, slice the sample exceedingly thinly, about 0.1 micrometers, because you bombard the sample with focused electrons at, say, 100,000 volts, and see what comes out the other side. To prepare such thin films, you have to chemically fix the sample. Dehydrate it and encase it in a polymer so that you can slice it reproducibly. How all that preparation changes the sample, especially living matter, is a serious question. Are you looking at an image of life or a still life? We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Around 1937, the first scanning electron microscopes were invented, which imaged the reflected electrons off your sample, showing the surface important for this episode. You don't get quite the resolution, but you do get far better resolving power than a light microscope. You also don't have to work so hard to fix the sample for viewing. Imaging in such microscopes in the 1940s. Began with studying carbon black particles and their exact shape and size. These particles are important for adding strength to car tires. Another subject of study was pigment particles in paints and cosmetics. The first images of viruses appeared in 1940, and imaging improved to the point where heads, tails, and other structures were visible by the late 1940s. By the 1950s, studies of metal foils became popular, particularly irregularities in their crystal structure, such as faults in atomic stacking and dislocations in the array of atoms. 
Here too, biological studies began, including early imaging of DNA molecules we mentioned, along with subcellular structures and organelles. And here is where we get the first images of individual atoms with the field ion microscope, invented by German physicist Erwin Müller in 1951. For this technique, you create an extremely sharp metal tip. Smaller than 50 nanometers in radius, you put the tip into a chamber, remove all the air, and replace the air with a noble gas, usually helium or neon. Then you cool the metal tip cryogenically to ultra cold temperatures. The gas atoms condense onto the bitterly cold metal tip, forming an ultra thin layer. Then you apply five or ten thousand volts to the metal tip. And this voltage ionizes the gas atoms lightly sticking to the tip into cations. The positive ionized gas atoms are repelled from the tip and travel to a detector screen, which images the ions and their original position on the metal tip. The ions travel in straight lines from the tip to the detector. Because the tip is so small and highly curved, this acts as a natural image magnifier. So bright spots appear on the detector, corresponding to where the gas stuck to individual atoms on that metal tip. And so, in October 1955, Müller and his doctoral student, Kanwar Bahadur at Pennsylvania State University, were able to visualize exactly the positions of tungsten atoms on a tungsten tip, with helium as the gas in the chamber. They were the first people to ever actually see atoms, with a magnification of a few million times. Such images can show the crystal structure of metals, including edges and steps in the crystal lattice. Let me caution you that an atom just looks like a bright dot in these field ion images. You can't see orbitals, electrons, nuclei, or any other structures inside an atom. By the early 1960s, analytical tools began to be invented to view the effects of only surface atoms and molecules, ignoring the rest of the atoms and molecules in the sample. Before we discuss some of these tools, we have to talk about preparing a surface for study. It turns out that surfaces in everyday life are always contaminated. They are being bombarded not only with dust and dirt. But gaseous molecules from the air—all that stuff can stick to the surface of whatever it is you want to study. Some gaseous molecules are inherently stickier to surfaces, and they tend to have electron pairs unbonded to other atoms. The most common of these molecules are nitrogen, oxygen, and water. So, if you want to study an uncontaminated surface, You first have to remove all the crud, whether it's water, dust, dirt, oil, or anything else, and then systematically add reagents to your surface to see what happens. Not until the 1950s was it possible to reach the so-called ultra-high vacuum range, around 10 to the minus 13 atmospheres of pressure, 
inside a specially built chamber. Such chambers had to be made of all metal, usually stainless steel, and ports to get inside were sealed with special copper gaskets. The whole shebang has to be baked, that is, heated up to evaporate off the residual layer of oils, crud, water, and any other molecules that have settled on the inside surfaces. While baking the chamber, you run special vacuum pumps to remove these contaminants. After you do this, the residual gases remaining inside the chamber take an hour or so to completely cover your sample again with a single layer of molecules, one monolayer. Therefore, your experiment has to be done fast right after baking. These systems are used in particle physics and in space research as well. The practical effect of removing contaminants is that greases and oils used to lubricate machinery go away, along with the monolayer of atmospheric gases on every surface. Without that contamination, metal parts seize each other and they don't move easily. As to the atomic and molecular structure on surfaces, we will get to details in later episodes, when the tools of the trade become common enough for scientists to start studying the surfaces by themselves. At this point, we can say that a surface of a material is likely to have a different structure because of the following reason. In a bulk material, the atoms are surrounded completely by lots of other atoms. The electrical interactions and chemical bonding from electrons and ions will be equal in all directions. That overall electrical field and its details creates quantum mechanical orbitals, or maybe bands in metals, with various energy levels for the electrons to sit in. Now let's shift to a surface atom. It has an endless array of atoms only on one side. That imbalance in bonding and electron orbitals is obviously going to shift the energy levels in the surface atoms and their immediate neighbors in different ways. This difference with asymmetrical bonding is going to cause the atomic structure at the surface of any material to change compared with the internal atomic structure. Exactly how that change at the surface manifests itself in specific materials and came to be a topic of study from the 1960s to 1980s. In our next episode, we return to the periodic table and the possibility of inventing new elements heavier than uranium. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. (laughs) 